Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's topic may be difficult for some listeners. We will be talking about violence against women, including all kinds of physical and sexual violence. The essential text we are discussing is the Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women given at the United Nations in 1993. And we're including it in this history-based project on systemic patriarchy because throughout history, violence against women and particularly domestic abuse was seen as a private matter, sometimes and in some places even endorsed by the state. But even when it wasn't promoted by the state, patriarchal institutions have condoned or disregarded violence against women, looking the other way and failing to protect victims and survivors, and instead protecting the perpetrators of that violence. Even the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, in 1979, and listeners should look that up if you haven't heard of it. It's an incredibly important uh, milestone in the protection of just women against discrimination. But even CEDAW neglected to address violence against women. So in 1993, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted this new resolution, the Declaration on the Elimination of violence against women. And we'll be sharing passages from this declaration today. It's an incredibly important text. And in addition, we'll be sharing important, difficult stories that require a lot of strength. My reading partners and I went over this content in a very detailed way beforehand so that they could choose what they wanted to talk about. And I'm really honored and grateful for this amazing mother-daughter team, Elena and Abby Gonzalez. Hi, Elena and Abby. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Um, Our family met Elena and Abigail in California in 2006, and we have been dear, dear friends ever since. I have to share, um, and I will try not to cry. I'm a crier. My listeners know this by now, but occasionally in my life, I've had a feeling right when I meet someone. Sorry, I am going to cry. Um, that I knew somebody already. My religious tradition has a belief that I grew up with that all human beings are really a family, like literally a family, and we all lived together as siblings before we were born. And Elena, I had that feeling really strongly when I met you, like, oh, I know you. Like, I remembered you. And that's only happened a handful of times in my life. So I'm really grateful that we're friends and I really love you. And Abby, we have known and loved you since you were just a tiny little girl. I remember the first time you came over to our house when you were so little. And I'm so grateful for your family and super, super honored and grateful that you've agreed to be here and to have this really important discussion today. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Gracias por invitarme. So I'm wondering if we could start off by having you talk a little bit about yourselves and um, tell your story. And um, Elena speaks really great English and Abby speaks perfect English and Spanish. I'm comfortable in Spanish, but I'm going to speak English the whole time and we'll have everyone just speak in the language that's most comfortable and we'll translate afterwards. So Elena, you can speak Spanish if you want to, but could you um, introduce yourself and kind of tell your story? My name is Elena Gonzalez. I was born in Mexico, and I grew up with seven siblings, three sisters and three brothers. It was uh, a family that was really dysfunctional. Unfortunately, ever since I can remember, I have suffered abuse of every type. My mom and dad were completely oblivious to everything going on. My siblings and I were pretty much on our own. My parents eventually separated and I remained alone with two older brothers. So at that point, I was the youngest. As time passed, unfortunately, the abuses continued from cousins, my brother, my own brother, um, stepfathers, whenever my mom brought us with her to their houses. As I grew up, I never went to school. I wanted to go to school when I was little. I finally started when I was 10 years old, and I intended until I finished my first year of 
high school in Mexico. Then I came to the United States. Like so many people, I immigrated to the United States without any documents. It was really difficult, and I arrived here with my mom and one brother and one sister who were already here. Once I arrived here, they didn't put me in school. Instead, they took me to work, and I've been working ever since. After a while, I met the man who's the father of my three children. Unfortunately, it was an experience that went on for 15 years and was really, really difficult. At the beginning, obviously, he was really caring, really convincing. But after a short time, he became violent. He was very... Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I couldn't go back to the home that I had left because I was afraid they would continue to abuse me there too. So I didn't have any other path. So I stayed there with him. I had a son and he was born at seven months. And the doctors didn't know why, but I knew why. It was because of the abuse, the abuse I suffered every single day. Thank God my son is okay. He's 22 years old now. I had my daughter, just like my first pregnancy. I had a lot of problems when she was in utero because of that same abuse. And thanks to the care of my doctors, we were both okay and she was born safely, and now she's 17. When I was pregnant with my third child, I found out I was pregnant when I was two months along, and that's when I decided to leave the relationship because it would be better for me psychologically. I say better because he had always told me I was good for nothing, that I would never be able to get along without him that I didn't do anything right, my cooking, my cleaning, anything I said, it was all bad. So my self-esteem was literally on the floor. But I kept working, I kept the house running, and sometimes when he said those things, I would think, how is it that I'm not good for anything if I pay the rent? I pay the bills, I buy food, I take my children everywhere they need to go. How? Am I good for nothing? But I didn't know how to leave. But then I started going to some classes thanks to a friend. I started attending classes and the teacher helped me to have more confidence in myself, to believe in myself, to love myself. And that helped me to finally say no more. One of the things also was that he had other interests um, so that was how I could leave uh, because he was gone sometimes and wasn't attacking me all the time it was really hard to leave when I was pregnant and I had two other kids but now we're okay it was a really hard process I think it was three to four years that I was trying to protect my children because my children suffered the same that I suffered hitting and yelling and I fought for custody but he had visitation and unfortunately he hurt my children those were really hard times actually when I looked back I don't know how I did what I did I don't know how I got through all of that but it made us stronger and my kids and I supported each other and now we are, we, we finally feel safe. We finally have protection so he can't get near us. Uh, he doesn't know our address. He doesn't know anything about us. So we feel safe. Hi, so I'm Abby. I'm 17. I was born in Atherton, California. Um, growing up, I, you know, was with my mom, uh, my brothers, um, right now, it's my mom, my brother, it's my older brother, being 22, younger brother, who is seven. Um, I like to play lacrosse. That's one of my sports. Um, love football. Don't play it, but love to watch it. And um, for the future, I plan on, well, law school is the goal. I want to be a criminal uh, lawyer. And uh, yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. 
Thank you, Elena and Abby. Um, thank you so much for being willing to share your stories. And yeah, we'll get a little bit more into your story later, Abby, but Elena, gracias for sharing. Thank you. So another question that I often ask my reading partners is about patriarchy or breaking down patriarchy and what that's meant to them. So Elena, if you have some thoughts to share about the, the structure of systemic patriarchy or about the relationship between, you know, the, the power dynamic between men and women, if you'd like to address that too. Mm -hmm. Bueno, es... Um it's sad that still in this time, there still exists this machismo and discrimination against women. Ever since I can remember, I have seen that it's always men who made the rules and ran the house and could say what a woman could and couldn't do. But I'm a single mother now, and I raise my three children, I keep them moving forward, and I have been able to do everything a man does. My children are studying in school, my son goes to a prestigious university, and he's working. I've kept a roof over their heads. They have had food and clothes. I do everything a man does. So I feel like they should give us more rights and opportunities, and that stigma should change. Yeah, I think of you as one of my heroes, Elena. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I'll begin with some background information about this document and what prompted its creation. So historically, if we think back to some of the very first episodes on this podcast, we learned that from the very first human writings in the Code of Hammurabi and the Middle Assyrian law, for example, women were considered in many ways to be literally possessions of men. And so if they behaved in a way that the men thought was out of line, the men could legally beat the women or you might remember they could crush her mouth with a brick, which is a quote from Middle Assyrian law, or stone her to death. That was in the legal code. We remember the stories in the Bible about wives and daughters being offered to be assaulted so that a man wouldn't be harmed. We learned on other episodes that the term rule of thumb comes from the law in the United States that a man could only legally beat his wife if the stick he used wasn't bigger in circumference than the base of his thumb here in the United States, which means in the last couple hundred years. So the concept that women have a, a right, like a human right to a life that's free from violence is a really new idea in human history. And since it's always been men and not women who have his historically been in power, these norms have been really, really, really slow to change. And even in the versions of patriarchy where the leaders say that they value women and they want to protect women, and I believe that they really do. They do value women and want to protect women, like in, in conservative religions, for example. Patriarchal institutions, even in those circumstances, have in too many cases been very, very slow to condemn the perpetrators of violence against women. They often end up protecting the men who perpetrate this violence against women. I do want to throw in here at the top of this episode also that this isn't a story about how all men are monsters. This story, even the one that we tell today as we talk, some of the heroes in these stories are men also. We've been, all three of us, I think I can speak for all three of us, um, in saying that uh, we all know and love really amazing, wonderful men, including Abby's two brothers, Elena's two sons, and, and also a lawyer that was helpful in Elena and Abby's case that we'll talk about a little bit later. We are grateful for all of the wonderful men in the world. Also, this isn't to demonize all men and say that they're awful. It's just, I think, actually a small percentage of men, but this small percentage does a lot of harm. And the system of patriarchy has kept it so that women have not been protected from those bad actors. So I just wanted to throw that in there as a caveat as we begin. And to also enlist the help and support of any men listeners, we're so thankful for you and, and need you. So I wanted to start out, and Ab Abby and I will take turns um, reading some data from the UN Women website. 
about kind of the state of violence against women globally right now. It's estimated that 35% of women worldwide have experienced either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or sexual violence by a non-partner. And that's not including sexual harassment. That's actual assault and violence at some point in their lives. So 35% of women. Some national studies in our country show that up to 70% of women have experienced physical and or sexual violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. In 2017, 87,000 women were intentionally killed. Of those, more than half were killed by intimate partners or a family member. This number means that 137 women across the world are killed by a member of their own family every day. Adult women account for nearly half, 49%, of all human trafficking victims detected globally. Women and girls together account for 72%, with girls representing more than three out of every four child trafficking victims. It is estimated that there are 650 million women and girls in the world today who were married before age 18. During the past decade, the global rate of child marriages has declined and South Asia had the largest decline during this time, from 49% to 30%. Still, 12 million girls under 18 are married each year, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, where this practice is most common, almost 4 out of 10 young women were married before their 18th birthday. Child marriage often results in early pregnancy and social isolation. Interrupt schooling, limits the girl's opportunities, and increases her risk of experiencing domestic violence. At least 200 million women and girls aged 15 to 49 have undergone female genital cutting in the 30 countries with representative data on the prevalence of this practice. In most of these countries, the majority of girls were cut before age 5. More than 20 million women and girls have undergone female genital cutting by a health care provider. With population movement, female genital cutting is becoming a practice with global dimensions, in particular among migrant and refugee women and girls. Approximately 15 million adolescent girls aged 15 to 19 worldwide have experienced forced sex, forced sexual intercourse or other sexual acts at some point in their life. Based on data from 30 countries, only 1% ever sought professional help. 82% of women in government positions throughout the world reported sexual harassment while serving their terms. Harassment is defined as remarks, gestures, and images of a sexual or humiliating sexual nature made against them. They cited social media as the main channel through which such psychological violence is perpetrated. Nearly half of those surveyed, 44%, reported having received death, rape, assault, or abduction threats towards them or their families. Thanks, Abby. That's extremely sobering data. And I feel like now is a good time to add just one more comment, which concerns all of the content of this episode, including everything we just talked about and everything we will talk about and even the title of this UN declaration. I watched a TED Talk several years ago by Jackson Katz. It's called Violence Against Women. It's a men's issue. So listeners, please, please watch this TED Talk. It is so important. Um, just look it up on the TED website. Jackson Katz talks about many things. And the one that I want to highlight right now is the grammatical structure of the sentences we use when we talk about violence and how that reflects our cultural attitudes because our speech really represents and reflects our mentality. The way we view the world comes out in our speech. So what we often do, and again, you'll hear it all throughout this episode, is that we frame violence in the passive voice. Instead of saying, for example, and this is the example that Jackson Katz uses on the TED Talk, he says, instead of saying, John beat Mary, we say, Mary was beaten. And that completely removes the perpetrator of the violence. And it puts the burden onto the victim to solve the problem. And so when even when we say, 
violence against women, the only thing that we hear is the word women, violence and women. And to this point, there's a great TikTok video. Also, I found it on um, Instagram on the female lead that reposted this TikTok video by the poet Christy Stein. And she builds on Jackson Katz's idea. She says, quote, we talk about how many women were raped last year, not about how many men raped women. We talk about how many girls in a school district were harassed last year, not about how many boys harassed girls. We, talked, we talk about how many teenage girls got pregnant in the state of Vermont last year, rather than how many men and teenage boys got girls pregnant. So you can see how the use of this passive voice has a political effect. It shifts the focus off men and boys and onto girls and women. Even the term violence against women is problematic. It's a passive construction. There's no active agent in the sentence. It's a bad thing that just happens to women. When you look at the term violence against women, no one is doing it to them. It just happens. Men aren't even a part of it. End quote. So I think that's a really, really important point to bring up. I do think we have to be careful if we construct sentences that way, saying men rape women, men harass women. I think we have to be careful to not generalize and make it sound like all men rape women and all men harass women, because that isn't true. And I I do think it's really important to be nuanced and to be sensitive, but I do think it's really important that when we talk about the violent acts that do happen, that men do perpetrate, it is important that we shift the focus back onto those few men, but onto those perpetrators of those crimes, rather than thinking of it as a victim's issue and therefore the victim's responsibility and burden, that it's women's responsibility to fix the problem because it will never be solved if we continue to do that. So now let's get to the document. And uh, the UN Declaration of the Violence Against Women was written in 1990. And so again, it's largely constructed in that passive voice, but we'll read it as it's written. So Abigail, can you start us off by reading the beginning of this declaration? Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women, proclaimed by General Assembly on December 20th, 1993. The General Assembly, recognizing the urgent need for the universal application to women of the rights and principles with regard to equality, security, liberty, integrity, and dignity of all human beings, affirming that violence against women constitutes a violation of the rights and fundamental freedoms of women and impairs or nullifies their enjoyment of those rights and freedoms, and concerned about the long-standing um, failure to protect and promote these rights and freedoms in the case of violence against women. So I have to just interject there. I think that it's meaningful, really meaningful that this document acknowledges the way that abuse can destroy people's quality of life and makes them unable to enjoy any of their rights and freedoms. I just think it's really interesting because it, when it cites the enjoyment of life, it's not something that we really hear in formal documents sometimes, but that is really valid if you just think about like human life if you think about what's what human life is about and that 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 violence does destroy a person's ability to have you know happiness and enjoy their life that's why partly why this is a big deal and why it needs to be legislated recognizing that violence against women is a manifestation of historically an equal power relations between men and women, which have led to domination over the discrimination against women by men and to the prevention of the full advancement of women. And that violence against women is one of the crucial social mechanisms by which women are forced into a subordinate position compared with men. Concerned that some groups of women, such as women belonging to minority groups, indigenous women, refugee women, migrant women, women living in rural or remote communities, um, destitute women, women in institutions or in detention, female children, women with disabilities, elderly women, and women in situations of armed conflict are especially vulnerable to violence. Thanks, Abby. Um, 
And there, I just want to point out again, the, the strength of your mom, Abby. <laughs> and I just so appreciate this document for pointing out the unequal power relations between men and women, and that it, that when women are abused, it prevents their full advancement. It prevents their ability to realize their own potential. And Elena, you spoke so beautifully about that in your in your own life, and also the way that you overcame that in your life. But how hard it makes it when you experience violence. I want here to talk about this last thing you talked about, Abby, when you're quoting the document about the increased vulnerability to violence that minority groups face. And we can't talk about this topic without bringing up the epidemic of violence against Native American women in our country because it's happening right now. I mean, it's happened throughout our history of colonization in this land, but it's still happening. I just listened to the book White Feminism from Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind by Koa Beck. And I really recommend that to listeners. There's a whole section on this topic, and I really highly recommend reading it. But for right now, I'll just share some information um, that I got on the Indian Law Resource Center website. In the United States, violence against indigenous women has reached unprecedented levels on tribal lands and in Alaska Native villages. More than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence and more than one in two have experienced sexual violence. Alaska Native women continue to suffer the highest rate of forcible sexual assault and have reported rates of domestic violence up to 10 times higher than the rest of the United States. Though available data is limited, the number of missing and murdered American Indian and Alaska Native women and the lack of a diligent and adequate federal response is extremely alarming to indigenous women, tribal governments, and communities. On some reservations, indigenous women are murdered at more than 10 times the national average. The vast majority of these women never see their abusers or rapists brought to justice. For more than 35 years, United States law has stripped Indian nations of all criminal authority over non-Indians. As a result, until recent changes in the law, Indian nations were unable to prosecute non-Indians who reportedly commit 96% of sexual violence against Native women. The Census Bureau reports that non-Indians now comprise 76% of the population on tribal lands and 68% of the population in Alaska Native villages. Many Native women have married non-Indians. However, it is unacceptable that a non-Indian who chooses to marry a Native woman live on her reservation and commit acts of domestic violence against her cannot be criminally prosecuted by an Indian nation and more often than not, will never be prosecuted by any government. Federal and state officials having authority to protect Native women and girls are failing to do so at alarming rates. By their own account, between 2005 and 2009, U.S. attorneys declined to prosecute 67% of the Indian country matters referred to them involving sexual abuse and related matters. Due to the lack of law enforcement, many of these crimes in Native communities are not even investigated. United States law creates a system that allows criminals to act with impunity in Indian country, threatens the lives, and violates the human rights of Native women and girls daily, and perpetuates an escalating cycle of violence in Native communities. Women who are subjected to violence should not be treated differently and discriminated against just because they are Native and were assaulted on an Indian reservation or in an Alaska Native village. So that's the end of that passage on IndianLaw.org. So listeners, please visit that website or read Coebeck's White Feminism or look up. There's also an informative New York Times article called Native American Women Are Facing a Crisis by Maya Salam in April 2019. You could look up that article for more information. And then consider donating to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center if you want to help. I think American citizens in particular need to know about this egregious human rights violation that's happening in our own country right, right here, right now. 
We also need to talk about other minority women and how undocumented status can make women especially vulnerable to abuse because they are often afraid to report anything for fear of being deported. And so, Elena, I would love it if you could take this point and talk a little bit about undocumented status and how that impacts women's vulnerability. Como ya dije antes, um... Like I said before, since I was a little girl, I always experienced violence. When I was with the father of my children, I didn't know how. I knew that it was not okay. I knew that he was doing damage to me with what was happening, but I didn't know how to leave. And mentally, I was not well, uh, but I didn't know what to do or who I could tell what was happening to me. I just thought, that I was, he made me feel that I, it was me who was the problem. So I was afraid to speak and I didn't know who I could tell for a very long time. I didn't know that I could call the police, that I could report him. It took me until I was getting separated from him after 15 years that it occurred to me that I could report him. And I started to speak and realized that I should have been doing that since the beginning. But I had been so afraid and didn't know how to do it. I'd been so scared to speak because the way he, it was the mental and physical violence. There often weren't bruises, you know what I mean? So when I did start to speak, it took a long time, many years, for anyone to pay attention to me. It wasn't until they talked with my son when he was an adult that they finally understood the damage that he had done to me and my children. It wasn't until then that they removed him completely. It wasn't until then that they gave us protection. But the process was more than three years. And during those years, he did a lot of things to my kids. He hurt my daughter, my son, and I didn't have any support. So I would say to myself, I don't have any support. Even as I say these things, there isn't any protection. So when they called my son, who was an adult, to testify, he recounted his experience, telling them everything his father had done to us, and not until then did we get the protection we needed. So, as women victims, they don't believe us. It's like a police officer told us, until we see you bleeding, until you're almost dead, are we able to do something? And that's what an officer actually told me. So I said to myself, I don't want to get to that point when I could just speak, when I could explain how things are. I know I took a long time, but I knew that very day I needed to say something, and I did it. But they didn't listen to me. So even today, people will say, why is she there? Uh, she's there because she wants to. That's because they don't know what's happening in our minds and the situation that we're living in. Thank you for sharing that, Elena. We're going to continue with some passages of this document. I'm just so grateful to have you both here and, and for your desire to share your experiences because it brings it home why this document is so needed and what it's actually talking about is real people's lives. So, Abby, do you want to continue with the declaration and read the next part? Because violence against women in the family and society is pervasive and cuts across lines of income, class, and culture, it must be matched by urgent and effective steps to eliminate its incidents. So, while violence does disproportionately affect women who are racial minorities and immigrant women and gay and trans women, it does impact women in every single walk of life. Um, sadly, I'm sure every single listener hearing this right now, no matter who you are, can think of a girl or a woman who you know has been abused at some time in her life. Continuing with Article 1, for the purpose of this declaration, the term violence against women means any act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely to result in physical, sexual, or psychological harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts, coercion, or arbitrary 
deprivation of liberty, whether occurring in public or in private life. Article 2, violence against women shall be understood to encompass but not be limited to the following. A, physical, sexual, and psychological violence occurring in the family, including battering, sexual abuse of female children in the household, um, dowry-related violence, marital rape, female genital cutting, and other traditional practices harmful to women, non-spousal violence, and violence related to exploitation. B, physical, sexual, psychological violence occurring within general community, including rape, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and intimidation at work, in educational institutions, and elsewhere, trafficking in women, and forced prostitution. C, physical, sexual, and psychological violence uh, perpetrated or condoned by the state wherever it occurs. So to me, this is really powerful because it makes it clear that male family members do not own their female family members. It's like astounding to me that that even needs to be stated, but... (laughs) There are some men who commit acts of violence against strangers, and these acts are unspeakably despicable and can cause terrible, terrible harm. And those crimes, I feel like in in pretty much all places I can think of, those crimes are more commonly agreed upon as crimes, right? If someone breaks into a person's house and commits a rape or a murder, then the state will recognize that more easily as a crime. But one thing that this document makes clear is that abuse is abuse, even within a family. So often a man who would never scream at or hit or threaten a coworker will allow himself to do that to his wife or to his child. And that really comes from this ancient belief that hasn't quite died out yet, that a man does own the woman in his household. And so he has the right to do that to quote unquote, his woman or his women to his daughters, but he would never do that to someone else's women, right? Because those women are owned by other men. That's where this belief comes from historically. So women need to know that their husbands, their boyfriends, their brothers, their fathers do not own them, not in any way. And I think it's really important that this document makes that really clear. Um, So Abby, you had told me earlier that you would like a chance to tell your story. Would you like to do that? Definitely. Thank you. Um, I talked a little bit earlier about my name, how old I I am, and um, all of that info. I think something I want to talk about is how um, it was relatively different the way I grew up. I I was born into the abusive household. So to me, it was normal. I thought that was the way people showed love. I knew my mom loved me. I you know, I thought my parents, you know, they they always expressed their love sometimes verbally. So it was, you know, the physical abuse, the manipulation, all of that. I thought that was normal. And it reflected a lot when I went to school. I had a lot of um, close friends and I would hit them sometimes and I would get in a lot of trouble for that. But I never understood why because I was like, yeah, that's normal. My dad hits me he loves me. I'm just hitting my friend because I love my friend. And I think that's when the school was a little confused on what was going on, but they never really looked into it. I never, they would ask me if stuff was going on at home, but again, I thought this was normal. So I thought this happens at everyone's house. This is happening at my friend's house. So no, everything's fine. Everything is normal. They never clarified what was and wasn't normal in a household. So I never felt like anything was wrong or was going on that wasn't what was happening to everyone else at my elementary school or, you know, growing up. But there was times where, you know, it it did feel off. I was very confused and sometimes, you know, I would have a dad who was very caring and sometimes he wouldn't be home for days and I didn't understand why, but I didn't really look into it because it was always just, you know, shushed. No one talked about it. If it happened, it happened. If it didn't, it didn't. It was normal. Um, there was a lot of fighting at night, you know, when after we were put to sleep. And it became almost like my white noise. I, if, if it wasn't happening, if it wasn't 
going on, then it was weird. I would get more suspicious of fi- of not fighting than of fighting. Um, sometimes it would be more loud than other times. And my brother, my older brother, who's six years older than me, this is when I was seven, eight, maybe nine or younger. Um, he would put like headphones on me and play some of his music that I never liked, but I got used to. So he would try and drown it out and he would turn the TV up and try and just drown it out for me. I never understood why. Um, When I was around eight or nine, it was a little more different for me because that's when I started. um, I started therapy when I was really young, but when I was older, I, I kind of got that idea that that wasn't normal, that parents shouldn't be fighting all the time, that like your parent, like your dad hitting you isn't really normal. Um, so it was, it, it got to the point where I, sometimes there was this like hero complex in me that like I would listen to see if anything got physical between them. And I would think about like what I would do to like stop him and like stop him from like hitting her, my mom or something like that. But I never was able to do anything because I was little. I was like eight. So there wasn't much I could really do. Um, but after that, my mom mentioned how during the divorce, um, she was pregnant with my little brother. And um, through that time, he was, you know, obviously he was born and my parents were still divorced at the time and are, but through that, it was really difficult for my mom, obviously, to be going through a divorce. We had to move out of the house we were living in. So we were living somewhere else at the time. We had just moved in. My little brother had just been born. We asked the court to give full custody of us, all three of us, to my mom. She got um, physical custody, but not um, complete. There was still visitation rights. Through the visitation rights, it I was used to the abuse. I was used to getting hurt. I was used to that. But I, I, it, for me at least, it never became sexual abuse until a couple years after um, my little brother was born. I'd say two or three years after. Um, for me, I didn't know what was happening. I was really young, but I figured it was just another way of showing love. So I just didn't say anything. Um, plus, it was that very wrong feeling that I had that it was my fault somehow. Like if I had done something differently, I know that is not how that, that is not correct. But it is something that you think to yourself because growing up, it was always somehow someone else's fault other than the person who was at fault. Um, for me overall, I never really cared about it, um, because I was more concerned about the fact that it was happening to my little brother. And I put a lot of pressure on myself through that because it was, it wasn't me protecting myself against my dad. It was me protecting someone else. And it was that feeling that I, maybe I can't protect myself because he's just a bigger, stronger man than, or person than I am, but it's my little brother. I should be able to physically help him, but I couldn't. And you feel a lot of ga- um, you feel a lot of guilt for that. Um, through time and an excessive amount of therapy, I figured out that that is not how that works. It is not my fault. It is no one's fault other than the person who decided to do that. But um, after that, I wasn't able to talk about it. I didn't tell anyone about it. I just stopped wanting to go see um, my dad. I stopped wanting to do that and um I couldn't tell anyone why because I I just couldn't I didn't know what to really say um so I kept quiet about it for about a year and then I talked about it and that's when we tried we reported it to the police we told them what happened we did all we were supposed to do but it never really went anywhere. Um, nothing really happened. We just got a restraining order and that was that pretty much. Thanks, Abby, for being so brave to tell your story. So I just have to throw in for listeners here too. I mentioned that I've known 
Elena and Abby for a long, long time. And um, I, I knew them this whole time that these things were happening in their lives. And I never knew. And so I just want to put this out there for any listeners. If you've had things like this happen to you, um, to seek help, there is help available. And we'll talk a little bit in a minute about how the justice system often fails women, but there, but, and you may have to be extremely persistent in getting help and getting justice. Sometimes it never happens, but there is help available. And for any listeners, I also want to put it out there to ask questions. If you get a sense that someone in your life is having a hard time and also to have an extra eye out for those people who are in those extra vulnerable categories like we talked about before. Elena, if I can say this, Elena, is so positive and cheerful and strong. And she never told me what was happening. And so we didn't know for years. And I feel so sad about that because I think of all those years that I could have been a help to her. And finally she finally kind of like broke <laughs> and told me what was happening. And it was at that point that I learned that it had already been going on. I mean, her whole life, but I didn't know. And um, I was able to then start to at least try to be a support as a friend, but also get involved in seeing if there was any way I could help um, legally and I learned, I mean, just even the fact that once once I learned what was happening and I said, well, when are your court dates? Like, when are you going to court? And she told me and I said, when you go, do you go alone? And she said, yes. And I thought she's just standing here all by herself in the courtroom. So just ask the people in your lives what is going on. Um, I was glad to be able to help in a small way once I knew but anyway, I want to read a little bit from Article 4, and then we'll talk more about the justice system. It says, the UN says states should develop penal, civil, labor, and administrative sanctions in domestic legislation to punish and redress the wrongs caused to women who are subjected to violence. Women who are subjected to violence should be provided with access to the mechanisms of justice and as provided for by national legislation to just and effective remedies for the harm that they have suffered. States should also inform women of their rights in seeking redress through such mechanisms. So Elena and Abby, I want, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about what happened when you finally did tell police and you did get a restraining order and then you were trying to negotiate the, the justice system. Um, I was never really allowed inside of the courtroom um, since you, you know, it, it, you're just not allowed as a, you know, 10 year old. But I was always at the time of the courtroom. There was a little room, a daycare of sorts, and I would always be there. I'd get pulled out of school for that just in case they needed me to testify or just in case I needed to talk to the judge. Um, I was never asked to, not, you know, in front of, um, not during a court date, but before and after sometimes I would. Um, but when I finally spoke about the abuse and, and we reported it to the police, we got the restraining order. It was never, it was, he would violate the restraining order all the time. Um, we would call the police as we were supposed to and told to, they wouldn't do anything. They would just make him leave multiple times. It was violated. Nothing ever really happened. Um, and honestly, nothing ever really happened in general. I don't, remember ever hearing about him being in jail for it. I don't remember him ever being not even on sex offender list or nothing like that. He just kind of got away with it. And that was pretty much all that ever really happened. We have a restraining order, which we need to get um, renewed every couple years. And he's just not allowed to see us technically. Um, but there's definitely been times I'm afraid to go to 
um, the movie theater or the downtown area of where I live because there's been multiple times where I've gone to watch a movie and I run into him and I just freeze and I run away. And I, but I can't call the police on that because it's a public area. So technically he's allowed to. So I just have to be able to unfreeze and come to my senses and leave as fast as I can. Sometimes I, I don't know what to do. So I just stay there. But other times I am able to leave the area. Um, I'm very paranoid all the time. Anywhere I go, I have to watch out because I never know. One of the reasons in college I want to leave the state. But in general, uh, there's there was no real justice at all. Um, we just got a restraining order and were told to um, be careful and to look out for him. And that was all. Just like my daughter said, never. Through testing the evidence, CPS confirmed the abuse and that everything Abby was saying was true. The little one, though, he was only three years old, so he could he could barely talk. So Abby was the one who spoke, and they investigated everything, and everything was confirmed. The detectives who investigated the case listened in on a phone call between Abby and her father, and the detectives secretly recorded the call to be able to get the proof, because by the time Abby told what had happened, time had passed. So if they did medical exams, they wouldn't have found anything. There were a lot of people listening, police, detectives, people from CPS. In that call, my children's father accepted when my daughter told him that what he had done had done so much damage to her. And then he laughed at her and told her that what had happened was my fault. And when the phone call was over, my daughter was really upset. The detectives came and told me that the call was sufficient proof to lock him up in jail for what he had done to my children. Uh, they sent the case to the prosecutor, but he said that it wasn't sufficient, and so nothing ever happened. He's still free. He did so much damage. And I repeat, not until my adult son testified did we get the protection we needed. Finally, we got a restraining order against him, but even then he violated the restraining order so many times. I even had a criminal restraining order against him, and he kept violating it. So it's not true what they say when they say they gave a restraint because he violated so many times and he continues to be free. So honestly, for me, the system failed me and it failed my children because if they had paid attention to me, if they had helped us when we asked for help, my children wouldn't have suffered so much abuse. I also want to say because once, once Eric and I were aware of the situation going on. We did want to help, and it was a real eye-opener for me. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have any experience with law, but once Elena started telling me all everything that was going on, then I started to go to the court with her, and I was... I was, I mean, you can, I, I was speechless. I was so appalled. We went in and the judge that was assigned to her case for one thing was so, Elena, you can correct me if you had a different perception, but he was such an absolute, I can't see the word I'm thinking on the show, but I, he was so chauvinistic and, um, condescending in the way he spoke to Elena, I was dumbstruck. I couldn't believe it. He actually, I mean, and Elena just talked about how psychologists had confirmed, like, Abby's telling the truth. This happened. He is a danger to the children. And when they were in court trying to negotiate the visitation rights, and Elena was saying he cannot visit the children, he cannot see them, he's a danger to them, and they had all of the proof for it. The judge just looked at Elena and said, I don't believe you. I remember him saying just straight out that he didn't believe this mother who was trying to protect her children, and it was in this time that the abuse got so bad. 
And in addition, the court-appointed lawyer that was working with Elena, I think you went through several different lawyers, right? Trying to find, and lawyers are expensive. And I knew lawyers were expensive, but then when I got involved thinking, no, you need a better lawyer. I mean, these lawyers were charging $800 an hour, some of these lawyers that I was talking to. And so the, the equal justice under the law, it doesn't work. I mean, for a person who can't afford a high powered attorney, is stuck with it. I mean, Elena was stuck with the person for a long time that once I finally got involved, I was like, she's not doing anything. Elena's paying this person. Nothing is changing. They go into the court. Incomprehensible stuff happens. The judge is a jerk to Elena, doesn't believe her. Meanwhile, this, this violent perpetrator is still able to visit these children. And I was incensed. And finally, and then finally, I, I emailed everybody I knew saying, can we find somebody who can help? I felt so desperate and so ashamed of my country's legal system. I was so angry. And finally, this wonderful friend of mine that I know through Stanford, who was this like... <laughs> crazy, amazing, like really well-known and respected lawyer from Los Angeles said, Amy, like, uh, you know, he worked for a huge firm. He said, we have a pro bono department. We do this stuff all the time. We help people and we'll step in and help. And they did. And they, they swooped in. They made all the difference in the world with dealing with that judge. He knew the judge. He knew how to work the, he knew how to to kind of work within the system and get a better result in terms of visitation rights. And he took it, he came in and took charge. But what I was so disappointed in, so first I will say, I will be grateful to that friend of mine, that lawyer forever, and to his firm for doing that work pro bono. But I was so angry that it took me having a connection to... I'm sorry to say it, but like what I felt like was through Stanford, I knew a super rich, powerful white attorney who could come into the courtroom and exert an equal amount of power on behalf of my friend whom I feel because of immigration status and language spoken and gender and race is at so many disadvantages. And I thought, I thought that all human beings were created equal and were supposed to have equal justice under the law. And I was, again, my eyes were really opened and I was so mad <laughs> and so grateful that we got the help we needed, but so mad. And I just thought, what would, ha what happens to so many women who don't have like, happen to have a friend who has connections to that? So the rest of the declaration talks about the importance of educating women and educating men, the importance of educating people that men and women and all persons are created equal. And so the rest of the declaration talks about raising awareness about these, these issues so that abuse will happen less often, so that men commit violence less often, and that when it does, people who are abused know that they can seek help, and that when they do seek help, there are appropriately trained professionals, um, and that the justice system works as it is intended to so that justice is served. So as we wrap up, um, I'd love... Abby and Elena to share any takeaways you have from the declaration or from this episode. One thing that I want to share first, and then I'll have you both kind of wrap things up for us. One thing that, that I've thought of as I've been reading the declaration is thinking about Malala Yousafzai in Pakistan. Um, when she was 11 years old, the Taliban moved into her village and placed restrictions on girls and women, including prohibiting girls from going to school. And that's happening actually in Afghanistan right now. 
But as we know, Malala defied the Taliban's orders and not only went to school, but also spoke out publicly against the Taliban. When she was 15, gunmen boarded her school bus and asked, who is Malala? And when she answered that it was her, they shot her in the head, intending to kill her. And of course, she recovered and she went on to do incredible work um, for women. She won a Nobel Prize. She was the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Prize. And she just graduated from Oxford University last year. And she's a global icon now um, for education and for women's rights. And the things that I was thinking about as I thought about Malala were three quick things. Number one, the resilience of the human spirit. Malala was shot in the head I mean, there, that's a, a pretty dramatic example of big men in power, men with weapons. They tried to annihilate her, and yet she rose up powerful. I mean, like an absolute goddess. And that is the way I see both of you, Elena and Abby, so strong and so brave and so powerful in the face of incredible adversity. And the second thing I wanted to say is just the importance of education. That's what Malala Yousafzai continues to fight for. And that's what this UN declaration advocates for. That's the point of this whole podcast. And Elena, I, I really noticed when you were telling your story about when you started to you know, take classes, that that's when you started to have the self-concept and the self-esteem to think, oh my gosh, I have autonomy. I have control of my life. I'm going to change things. And I can't wait to see what you do in college, Abby. Um, and I know that you're so grateful to your mom for the gift of making sure that you would get an education because she was deprived of an education because of the background that she came from. And then, like I said before, at the beginning of the episode, the third point that I wanted to make is that the bad guys in the story of Malala Yousafzai were men. But the hero, one of the heroes of her story too, second to Malala herself, is her dad. He was a teacher, a school teacher who persisted in educating girls under the threat, you know, that he himself could be killed. And she says that her dad has always been her biggest advocate and champion. So again, I want to say that this is not that all men are bad. Um, and we are so grateful for the good men in this world heroic men and women who are doing great things in the world. So those were my takeaways. Abby, do you want to talk about um, any takeaways? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest takeaways I've not only through this um, reading, but in general has been the fact that it's a different time now than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I was not alive 20, 30, 40 years ago, but um, from hearing how it was for my mom growing up or, you know, I've always been drawn to more adults than children. I have more friends that are adults, get along better with adults. Um, when I talk to teachers about it or anyone really, um, they always tell me how everything was, you know, kept quiet. You never talked about what was going on. If something was going on, you just kind of dealt with it in your own way and moved on from it. And now we encourage everyone to talk about it, not because it's a particularly fun subject, but because it's an important one and something that should be, you know, talked about and we need to help people through it. And I think one of the most important things throughout just, you know, the past couple years has been about being more vocal about what you've been through because there's other people who need that encouragement. For me, what helped me talk about my abuse was hearing someone we were close with talk about hers and what went, what she went through. And it made me feel comfortable and strong enough to talk about it. But something that I've noticed throughout just the small amount of time I've been on earth is that everyone talks about how it's 2021 and we should be more progressive and we're more open to things than you know people might have been 20 30 years ago but it's still going on there hasn't been any any real real fundamental change that makes you see that the rate of abuse 20 years ago is different from from now and if it's going down all i've seen and all i've read and heard is that it's either been the same or it's getting worse but I think um, a takeaway is that it definitely 
has not changed, but I think that throughout time, my generation, definitely, if we really try and we stick to it the way I think we should, it definitely can change and it should. Um, But yeah, I think through all of this, the reading and just my personal experience with the justice system, I'm really looking forward to moving to law school and doing that for not just me, because I definitely feel like there was no justice for me. And I can't really get that in the future. I can't find a way to do that. It it failed me once. I don't think it's going to help in the future. But I can help others and I can find a way to get them justice for whatever they survive. You know, in the future, I can help people who went through something that I did and I can passionately advocate for them. And that's something I'm really, really looking forward to. Gracias por, por uh, invitarme. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has listened to me. And I hope that my experience that I have lived helped those who are listening to know that they are not alone and that they have to speak out. We have to defend ourselves. We have to get help. And I hope that just like I had people who helped me, I call them angels on earth, I hope that they will have help. And also, I want to comment that I had someone come into my life at that time, and she had survived domestic violence, and her daughters had too. And unfortunately, she was hospitalized. She had been in a really bad place, but she came into my life when I was going through all of that, and she said, you're not going to go through what I went through. I'm not going to see you in a hospital. You're going to defend yourself. And she took me to the places to ask for restraining orders. And she showed me how to do everything, everything that she had been taught when she was going through it. So now if someone comes into my life who needs help, I give her the tools that I was taught, that I was given. Today, thank God, I'm doing better. I'm doing really well. I'm with my children. It's hard work every day after you live through these situations. And sometimes you're sad and you don't know why. But it's because what you've lived through, it's a daily struggle. After nine years in therapy and my kids in therapy, we'll probably be in therapy for the rest of our lives, but we're okay. We're happy. We're trying to move forward, do the best we can in our personal lives, work hard, improve ourselves in every way. And well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Amy. Gracias a ti y a ustedes. Um, thank you so, so much for being here, both of you, Elena and Abby. Um, this was a real honor. I feel really, really humbled and honored to have you here. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading the first book by a man since we read John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women. We'll be reading The Gender Knot, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy by Alan Johnson, written in 1997. And this book is one that I recommend either purchasing if you can. They sell used copies of it online, um, so it's um, an affordable book. Or you can listen to it on Audible. I started reading it with a highlighter in hand. And then I found that I was just marking almost the whole page, every page, which defeats the purpose of highlighting. But um, that's a good indicator that it's a valuable resource. So see if you can read or listen to The Gender Knot, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy by Dr. Alan Johnson. And then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.